Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. It really is a privilege to have the Word of God. And we live in a day and age where we have access to the Bible, uh, being preserved for us, given to us, and in these services Sunday by Sunday, seeking to understand what it is that God is saying to us. So why don't you turn with me, please, in your Bible to the Old Testament. We continue tonight in 1 Samuel, book of 1 Samuel and chapter 11. So 1 Samuel chapter 11, picking it up in the first verse, and we'll go right through to the end. It's a shorter chapter this week, just 15 verses. So reading from verse 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messages through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, We will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him in the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. They came out as one man, and when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel with 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000, and they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, 
Let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced gladly. Just so far again, just the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, very mindful of the scripture tonight that tells us that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus as Lord. And even coming tonight, Lord, we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done. And in our lives, in our church, in our city, in our country, that you would be exalted and glorified. And so may this message tonight, Lord, achieve your purposes. May you speak to us. May we be recipients, glad recipients of this, we pray. Pray for myself in preaching, that you would give me clarity of thought and simplicity in expression, we pray. Amen. I want us to think in this introduction tonight about the issue of skepticism being a skeptic. Skepticism regarding particularly the area of someone's appointment into a given role is common. It's common occurrence. Is he really, is she really able or will she be able, he be able to do a particular job? Let me give you some examples. Some of you may not remember, this goes back quite a few years, but while there was great support across the country for the appointment of Thabo Mbeki as president, there were many also who doubted whether he could step into the shoes of Nelson Mandela. I was skeptical. Here's another example. Similarly, skeptics are already speculating that there isn't a single man on earth capable of stepping into the shoes of John MacArthur's pulpit when his bodily tent collapses. And that's so. People are, is there going to be someone? For many centuries, very sadly, men and women have also been skeptical about whether Jesus is capable of saving men and women. Doubts about Jesus and his ability to save. Someone who really caught my attention many years ago, and I have referred to him again and again because he gave his life to serve people in uh, humanitarian aid. His name was Albert Schweitzer. And he wrote a book. And in that, that particular book, was the title was The Quest of the Historical Jesus, wanting to know who Jesus really was. And this is what he wrote in his conclusion or along the way in that book. He said, Jesus threw himself upon the wheel of history in an attempt to bring it to a halt, to bring this world to an end and to usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness and power. But the wheel continued to turn and it crushed him. Even now, said Schweitzer, his mangled body hangs on that wheel as it turns. Skeptical about who Jesus was, is. He's skeptical about the work of Jesus on the cross. 
He denied the reality, the historicity of the physical resurrection of Jesus, denying the ascension of Jesus, denying the reign of Jesus from the very throne of heaven. Now, as we turn to this passage, and I'm, I'm trying to get us to think about skepticism, uh, Saul faced a similar challenge. While there were many people who responded favorably and thought this appointment was great, and you can find that in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, verse 24, where Samuel said to all the people, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Enthusiastic, uh, not skeptical. There were others who were skeptical. If you read on a little bit in chapter 10, this is where we ended last time, uh, verse 27. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him no present, but he held his peace. And so the question to ask is, would the skeptics be proved wrong? Would Saul be able to live up to the expectations that the broader constituency had regarding his ability to save them from their enemies? And so in this next section of 1 Samuel 11, an answer will be provided. And the context, the, the narrative is the unfolding of a terrible crisis of serious proportion. The people of Jabesh uh, Gilead faced something terrible, an, an attitude not unlike some kind, sometimes the antagonism you may even face as a Christian. So my very first point tonight is what they faced, and I think what we sometimes face, mocking arrogance toward God's people. So mocking arrogance toward God's people. The people of Jabesh seemed... Uh, really to have their backs to the wall, facing an extremely undesirable future. Nahash, the Ammonite king, had conquered them, Jabesh Gilead, and they were one of the Israelite towns, a fortified town about 20 kilometers south of the Sea of Galilee. So we read in the very first verse of chapter 11, then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Now, now, we need to go back and understand the context. We need to understand the very nature of this particular person, this particular king, and his effort. And, and someone described him as someone who was on a binge of terror among all Israel on the east of the Jordan. He was enjoying being a terror to people. He was enjoying massacring people. And there is a, a fragment uh, uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was some scrolls they found in, 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 in a cave in archaeological uh, search that gives us some further information about this particular king that I thought I would share with you, some additional uh, material what really would come in the context, perhaps even before uh, we get to chapter 11 of 1 Samuel. L listen to this. Now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing, now notice the numbers of people, the Gadites, the Reubenites, grievously, gouging out the right eye of each of them, allowing Israel no deliverer. 
No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained, whose right eye Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered Jabesh Gilead. Then we read, and we find out now, these men are under siege. The men of Jabesh in desperation, can you imagine uh, the uh, plea, begging, pleading Nahash for something better than death? And so we read in the second part of first verse, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Now spare a thought for these people. I'm not so sure what you think or perhaps even what I would do. My, my speculative thought is that anyone in their situation would rapidly conclude it is better to be a living servant than a corpse in a public grave. They knew, they were aware of this king's ruthless, they were aware of his cruel treatment of people in other places that he had conquered. And so, but he agreed. In this instance, he agreed to a treaty, but with a stipulated condition, the second verse. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes. I must confess, I wondered how he did that. Was it with a pudding spoon? <laughs> terrible, terrible thought of gouging somebody's eye out. And, and, but, but he threatens to do it. He had done it. And, and think about the act. And, and just to elaborate on this, it was not some kind of just random, malicious, gruesome act that, that he wanted to do. And They would be spared... They would become servants by having their right eye scooped out. There would be never-ending subservience, but it made them unfit for military service. Again, a little bit of background over here. The left eye was normally covered with a shield when they went into battle. The right eye was used to see the enemy. And so with the left eye covered and the right eye socket empty, they could not fight a battle. And so he was quite strategic in what he did to his enemies. But, but that's only part of it. Nahash, more than wanting to just produce disabled soldiers, his delight was in heaping disgrace on the people of Israel. He says there that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace, scorn and mockery, ridicule on all of Israel. Now see the arrogance, why, why I, I call this the arrogance toward God's people. I can imagine him as the king uh, making them squirm. You're under my control. I'm in charge. I'm the king. I'm the greatest. And, and you are at my disposal. In this instance, he agreed to the request to have a few days to see if they could find any help. In the third verse, the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. If there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Have you felt at times scorn from those who are not believers toward you as a believer? None of us have ever faced the challenge of having our eyes scooped out 
of their sockets. But I do think we know something of the arrogance of the world toward particularly evangelical Christians. Must be aware of that. The world does not like Christians. The world does not like Christianity. It irks them to have their lifestyle choices challenged. It irks them to be told that God will be their judge. It irks them to know and to be told that they need a savior. And so this Ammonite mindset is to maim or to destroy or to ridicule or to belittle God's people. You should expect it. But that's not going to be the end of the story. You must expect it. You will find this kind of thing. In fact, uh, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, John writes, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. But is that the end of it? Is that all that happens and, and, and that's nothing further to be said or done? To the arrogant individual, to the crowds of people who mock and ridicule the people of God, have the final word. Well, Nash believed that he was invincible, that he did have the final word, that he was master of his own destiny, believing that the men of Jabesh were lesser mortals and would forever be at his beck and call. But as we read on in this passage, we begin to see something very different unfolding. Saul gets all fired up, and my second point, Saul gets fired up to marshal the troops to save God's people. Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Understandably, when you hear some fellow citizens, some extended family, uh, other people from your particular nation or tribe, uh, suffering or subjected to injustice and, and difficulty, the very natural human reaction is one sadness and, and grief and really what seemed to them to be a hopeless situation. What hope would they have against the mighty Nahash? Again, I want to ask the same question I asked a minute ago. Is the hopeless human response the end of it? Well, it's not long in the recently appointed and anointed king arrives on the scene. Verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And I want you to see, in a moment, in a moment, the tables begin to turn. Verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And then what do we read? We see, well, Saul takes the lead. He summons with a dire warning uh, uh, for, uh, uh, to, to the people of Israel for help. And, and, and we read in verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen, he cut them into pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And understandably, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came as one man, so would I. Within no time at all, 
Saul had 300,000 men from Israel. He had 30,000 men from Judah. They were ready to follow the king into war. And so with that hope restored, and there's an undertaking given in verse 9, and they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Get word back to them. Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Understandably, they were glad. Now we need to be thinking about this narrative. What's going on for us? What is it that God is saying to us? Is God simply showing us in this passage that Saul is a great king at this particular stage of his reign? Or is there something more that God is saying that is being revealed to us? Now, I need you to take your Bibles now. All right, you've got to look at your Bibles because I want to show you something about the significance of what we call all Scripture being God-breathed. All right, follow with me. The structure of the passage has been put together to communicate a crucial message to us and others who are the people of God. The passage has a central message with little couplets structured all around it. And I'm going to take you through that. I, could, I wish I could do it on a blackboard, but I don't have that. Have a look at the first verse. What do we read in the first verse? The king who oppresses and destroys, Nahash. Go right to the end of the passage, and we read in verse 12 and 13. So opposite ends forming a couplet. Now we read of another king who delivers and preserves. Okay, do you get the idea? Now follow me, don't lose me. Then we go to the second verse. Ammon threatens. In other words, Nahash, the Ammonites are threatening. Go to the end of the passage, one up from the last verse. Again, we read of the Ammonites or Ammon. They're fleeing. Go to the next verse, verse 3. Another couplet. We will give ourselves up to you, the people say, to Nahash. Later on, they also lead him up the garden path in verse 10. And again, they say, we will give ourselves up to you. Now, do you get the point? There's a couplet, there's a couplet, there's a couplet, and there's, there's another couplet. In fact, there's two more. The messengers with bad news, verse 4. The messengers with good news, verse 9. And then we have Saul's inquiry, verse 5, and the response. And verse 7 and 8, Saul's message and response to it. Now, all of that, if you put that on a piece of paper and you structure it uh, one by one, couplet by couplet, you will find something right in the middle. And you know what you find? Verse 6. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Bluntly put, he's not Saul who saves, it is God who saves. That's the point of the passage. If you look at the passage in various places, you'll see the repeated theme of deliverance, saving, or salvation. And so the Spirit of God takes Saul who was hiding behind his oxen in the field. He is this shy, hesitating farmer, not quite sure what to do as king, and he makes him function beyond his human ability. Verse 11. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning. Uh, the morning watch struck down the Ammonites until the heated day, and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Nahash, 
the invincible, the arrogant king is knocked off of his polystyrene pedestal, defeated. Salvation came. Not because Israel had a king, but because the king had God's spirit. It is not the institution of kingship or monarchy, but it's the power of the spirit that brings deliverance. I wonder if they learned that lesson. And I wonder ourselves, as an immediate challenge tonight, have we learned that lesson? It's not the skilled individual. It's not the eloquent speaker. It's not the intelligent pastor or the leader or the member that accomplishes gospel and kingdom fruit. It is the humble servant of God filled with the Holy Spirit. Remembering what Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I'm not done because there's still more of this passage. It's a lesson that is further explained in the next few verses. If you go to the next few verses, I've, I've put a heading there, uh, a summons to allegiance. So in the aftermath of victory, some of the people remembered the skeptics. You know, those worthless men, worthless fellows who had questioned and doubted Saul's ability to be their deliverer. And their feeling was that, well, since these people had muttered against the newly appointed king, uh, this king that had now led them into victory, well, they should be put to death. Saul responds, and he sets their thinking straight, reinforcing who the real deliverer really is. The deliverer that saved them from Naash, the Ammonites. Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel enters the picture, and the story continues to unfold with, with further revelation, further understanding, understanding given to us. And and, and Samuel, Samuel says in verse 14, Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Well, what did Samuel have in mind? Going to this place called Gilgal, there to renew the kingdom or the kingship? Well, let's think about the word renew. It cannot mean anything less than something of prior deterioration. And so I ask myself in trying to understand this passage, whose kingdom whose kingship was to be renewed? Is it Saul's kingdom and people's submission to Saul? Is it the Lord's kingdom and the people in submission to the Lord? Well, Saul is the new kid on the block. It's his first showing in his role as king. So I'm not so sure that it points to a, renewance, a renewing of allegiance to his kingdom. It's God's kingdom. Early in the process, God had said to Samuel, remember when they requested a king? Back in chapter 8 and verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, 
Obey the voice, the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. Their rejection of God had to be corrected. They needed to repent and they needed to see that no earthly king could ever take the place of God. God is king and God will always be king. And then as we develop the passage a little bit further, we see the emphasis of God explicitly being their deliverer. God is the deliverer. Against the Ammonites was Saul acknowledging it was the Lord. I am convinced Samuel led them to Gilgal for them to undertake renewed allegiance to the rule of the Lord. The place Gilgal also has some significance, if I could just mention one or two or three things. It was at Gilgal that the power of God had worked for Israel against hopeless odds. God had enabled them, God had provided for them to cross the Jordan River, and stones were placed as a memorial with an instruction to remember that it was God who did this. It was also at Gilgal that a new generation of the people of God came into being because of the disobedience of a previous generation in the wilderness. In Joshua chapter 5 verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now my point is this, God demanded allegiance from his people. His people then, back then, his people yet tonight. God demands allegiance. And so there is a question that we ought to ask. Does your loyalty and obedience and worship need to be renewed? Have you deteriorated in your walk with God? Do you need to repent? This application of this passage, do you need to repent from spiritual decline? Some people speak of backsliding. Have you drifted into coldness and hardness of heart? And this passage is not calling you back to Gilgal, although this is an illustration for us, but to the foot of the cross, the real Savior, the ultimate Savior, the prophesied Savior. Again, a place where you can humbly Put things right with God, looking afresh at Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for you. A couple of words in conclusion. In some way, the skeptical, worthless men were right by asking whether Saul could save them. Can this man save us or Why do I say that? Well, can anyone expect a finite, fallen human being to accomplish what, humanly speaking, is impossible? No. They were wrong by leaving God out of the picture, yes. And even those who applauded Saul as king had to learn and to remember it's the Lord, it's God who reigns powerfully as king over kings. 
And so there's a bigger issue here that I believe we need to face than simply having your eyes scooped out and made a slave to some power-hungry despot. I do believe that there's a challenge here in this passage regarding dealing, us dealing with sin and disobedience, us dealing with the reality of the prospect, avoiding the prospect of the wrath of God. It's the saving of your soul from sin. It's finding acceptance with the Lord who is strong and mighty. It is receiving forgiveness and the favor of God. Being skeptical about any promise of salvation from anything or anyone apart from God is wise. Be careful. Salvation is of the Lord. And like those worthless men, you can ask, if anybody comes to you, how can this man save us? Well, I'll tell you why Jesus can save you. I'll tell you why Jesus has saved me. He can save you because of his love for sinners. He can save you because he died in the place of sinners. He can save you because he has satisfied the justice of God. He can save you because he's accomplished redemption from people, for people from every nation, tribe, and language, not just a, a particular culture group. I want to show you tonight, Jesus can save you. But, but, you need to go humbly to him, humbly pleading uh, for salvation, repenting from your sin, believing, not like Albert Schweitzer, believing in all that he has done for you, trusting him by faith for the salvation that you need. And if you are someone who can say tonight that you are saved, it's a miracle. Thank God for it. And so, Lord, we pray to this end as we leave this place tonight. May we have this message ringing in our ears that God is our Savior, that Jesus has accomplished salvation, that the Spirit of God is at work in applying that into the lives of young people and older people, men and women from different places, different tribes and nations and languages. And continue that work among us, we pray. Thank you for those who have come to that place of humble submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.